I wanted to be able to, uh, to petition the Lord for us. So we come into his presence. Uh, I wanted to say that we've had an interesting week. There's been lots of emotions. There has been lots of communications, lots of expressions. And we need to talk to Jesus about them. We need him to take them to the throne of grace. So let's do that now. Lord Jesus, as we gather in this place, we've come not because of the air conditioning, not because we wanted a rose. We didn't come because we have to. We came because we want to meet with you. Lord, we need you. The song of ascent that we, sent, that we did at the call to worship, Lord, tells us that, that as people came to Jerusalem, they said, if it wasn't for the Lord, if it wasn't for the Lord, where would we be? We would have been swallowed up. We would have been consumed. Oh, Lord, I thank you that we have some place to go. I thank you that there is hope, that there is, there is a remedy, there is a solution. And it's in you. Lord, I I pray that even on Mother's Day, as we have honored our moms, that we would recognize that your love is even greater. And so we run to you, and we pray that you will console us when we're hurting. We pray that you will spank us when we need it. I pray that you will give us a time out, if that's what's necessary. When we grew up, you had to put soap in your mouth if you said stuff that was dirty. Lord, I pray that you, as our loving Heavenly Father, that you would take care of those things and help us to run like these children that came up and engage in our Father's business. Lord, there are some things that are going on in our souls that are struggling, and we ask that you will minister. Lord, I thank you that this week that there was encouragement as our session went on record to encourage me with an increase of pay, and then there was also the, the absolute encouragement of the congregation to speak up. Lord, I pray that you will restore something here that we haven't had before, that there would be an embrace of the initiatives that we have had, which is to love or to care, to teach, which is to disciple, that there would be a passion to communicate, in other words, to talk to each other, love one another, there would also be um, the commitment that we would say, yes, Lord, this is what I will do with the time I have. Lord, those five things that are listed on the back of the bulletin, I pray that we might embrace them, that this would be the dawning of a new day. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us because the enemy comes in like a flood. The evil one goes about like a roaring lion and even more cunningly, shooting his fiery darts to knock us down. Lord, I pray that you will preserve us from falling into the trap of despair and discouragement. Lord, as I think about our congregation, there are a few that are in despair. There are a few that have felt like they're in that toilet bowl spin going down. Deliver them from despair. Oh, Lord, I pray that ministries like Celebrate Recovery would be effective one day, but I pray even now that the Spirit of God would lift them out. Help them not to be overcome because things aren't going the way we would like them to go. But I'm not sure if there's anybody that's happy in our culture right now. Yes, there's some excitement about what's going on in the political realm, but for all the excitement, there's there's more people upset than there are people that are positive. 
whether you're Democrat or whether you're Republican or whether you're independent, Lord, we don't have peace on this earth. We don't have peace in our hearts. A lot of us, when we talk about families, we don't even have peace at home. The term we embrace is dysfunctional. Lord, we don't even have peace sometimes in our own church family. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will do great things in the days ahead. ahead. That you will remind us that the reason we're here is not because of us, it's because of you. We believe that our sovereign God, our great Lord of which we just sang, is the one who starts the good work in us and who is the one who will finish it. He'll complete it. He'll keep working on us to make us what we ought to be so that when the last trump sounds, when we're caught up together with the other saints that have gone on in death, that we'll meet them together and we shall ever be with the Lord and things will be good then. Lord, I pray for your grace for our church family I also specifically want to give thanks for our brother Ralph. Lord, as his wife shared with me, uh, it was a good surgery. As Ralph shared on Friday night, he said that, that it was serious, more serious than they anticipated, but the success appears to be very, very likely. I do thank you for his good countenance and his strong faith. I also want to pray for Bob Braun, who was excited, and even the bulletin is listed as being home, but he's not. He was had open heart surgery, then he went home, he went back to the hospital, he went home, and yesterday he was back in the hospital. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen him and give him the joy of taking a deep breath and give him the joy of coming back to serve here, which is one of his great loves, as our sexton. Lord, I also want to lift up our brother Kit, who's engaging on a surgery to find relief from back pain. Very serious surgery this week on Tuesday, which will recover many weeks of recovery. I do pray for him. I thank you that his wife's surgery has been quite successful and that she's able to be strong enough now to even minister to him. Lord, there are quite a few other prayer requests that have been listed, quite a few other prayer requests that we have shared during our Sunday school time. There are a lot of people that are hurting. There are folks with cancer, like Trisha Moon's brother. There are folks who are dealing with other issues and matters, infections, I pray that you will help them to recover, to be strengthened, to be able to do the work that you have ordained them to do. And likewise, Lord, as we come to this table in a few moments, I pray that you help us to take it seriously. Help us to remember you. Help us to look at the cross. And and even though it's a stumbling block to so many, it's foolishness to so many, to us who are being saved, it's God's power. Oh, Lord, we understand what took place there. And that's why we look forward to coming to the Lord's table for communion. In Jesus' name, amen. The Upreach team is invited. Anybody would like to join for prayer to go through the double doors after service today. And and, uh, uh, Brother Wayne is going to open up a half an hour of prayer. It's uh, Mother's Day, but we wanted to give you the opportunity to come and pray and join us. Join our hearts together to talk to our Savior. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we are... Uh, going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Normally, this passage is only referenced when we're trying to talk about church officers because this is the passage that explains how the deacons came to existence. Uh, The word deacon is an interesting word that means a servant, somebody that is willing to help to do the work. Uh, But a lot of times, we miss the other things that were going on. The things that were going on in this passage are very fascinating, uh, and I want to be able to tell you that it's, 
the focus is on communication. Because if you take the bulletin card that's in front of you for the whole month, uh, the Lord has put on my heart to talk about how we communicate. Obviously, there's some weakness in our communication. Sometimes we come to the wrong assumptions because we don't know all the facts. Sometimes we don't even ask questions, but we think we know something. Sometimes we say things that we wish we would never have said. All of those things are communication issues. And that's why we're preaching through these things. That's why our theme verse, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. When you look through all of these things, you'll see it. Now, uh, it's interesting when you really look at what was communicated. So let's look at these uh, first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired words as they were given in the original. These were written by Luke. He was writing a history to his friend Theophilus, who was a man, obviously, that was a Greek man. And he shares the history of the church. Once redemption was accomplished, he shares with us how redemption was applied. And in Acts 1.8, he says it started locally, then it went regionally, and it was to go to the world globally. This is part of the process of it moving from local to regional. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. I just put an emphasis on that. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Perimenes and Nicolos and a proselyte who was a proselyte of Antioch. These men, they set before the apostles and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll take the preaching of this word, the words of this preacher's mouth, and the meditations of our congregation's hearts, and make them acceptable in your sight. O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's pretty interesting to think about a text like this. I would love to not have gotten to chapter 6. It would have been great to stay in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can take a look back and you're going to be able to see at the end of chapter 4, the sermon last week, I was started off by saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could stay there, where you could dwell together. Uh, when you look at the end of chapter 4, after the God answered their prayer of boldness, you find that... Um, in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place that they were, were shaken. But then it goes on to say, now when the full number of those believed, this is verse 32, they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that of any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
and great grace was upon them all. I would love to stay there. Wouldn't you? What would it look like in the 21st century to go back to Acts chapter 4 at the end? Now, that bubble was popped in chapter 5. Chapter 5, we are introduced to a great couple that's a part of the church. And that great couple in the very first verse tells us how wonderful their marriage was, how wonderful life was. But they still wanted more. They weren't satisfied with chapter 4. So chapter 5 said, we want some praise. We want to be treated just like Barnabas was. And so they connived a plan. And in chapter 5, we see the unfolding of their masterful plan. And it would have worked if it wasn't for those meddling. Oh, it wasn't the meddling kids. You know, Scooby-Doo. It was because the Holy Spirit revealed their plot. It wasn't love that drove them there, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It wasn't because they sold their their gifts to give to the poor. It was they didn't have love. Wow. Tough. Chapter 5. But I told you there was two scenarios of, of, that popped the balloon. The first had to do with some individuals who schemed in their own way because they personally didn't feel satisfied enough because they really weren't overwhelmed with the love of God. Hence, they got a dose of the fear of God. Now, in chapter 6, we get another kind of problem. The utopia breaks down, and we hear complaints. The Greek word talks about murmuring. Chapter 6 is murmuring. And the problem was, is that those elders, those, they actually call them apostles, the 12, they weren't getting the job done the way it needed to get done. I'm not kidding. And so as we unpack this and we look at it, you're going to be fascinated with a a passage that says, hey, what do we do when this happens inside the body of Christ? Now, I would have preferred today to just to go and honor mothers from Proverbs chapter 31. But as I was wrestling through and looking through the New Testament, talking about moms, there's really not that many passages that talk about mothers. You know, you've got that famous one when Jesus is on the cross in John 19, and he looks at John and he says, take care of this woman. Behold your mother. It's beautiful. I could go back into the Old Testament. We can look at the lineage of Christ. I've already alluded to the fact that God has used women from the very beginning to bring about his will, to to procreate, to have dominion. And finally, when Adam had Eve and they had that union, uh, Genesis 2.24, it was very good. I imagine that Adam said it was very good too. I imagine that Eve said it was very good. Because it was. The design that God set up If we focused on women throughout the Bible, we could look at a few of these individuals. Uh, We could look at some of them in the lineage of Christ. Of course, one of the first ones that come to mind is Sarah. A girl who couldn't have any children until she bore the the child of promise. She had tried to experience motherhood by, by, uh, I don't want to say by selling her her handmaiden, but she was trying to to get somebody um, a virtual motherhood. And so she got Hagar to step in and play the role. But what a mess that was. We're still reaping the consequences of that division between Hagar and Sarah. We could have talked about Moses' mom, Jochebed. We could have talked about uh, Samuel's mom, you know, who, you all know her, right? Hannah. 
We could have talked about Samson's mom. You know her too, right? If you know her name, please tell me. We know her husband's name. But we could go through all of Scripture and find all these passages. We could focus in the New Testament and talk about Elizabeth, who was the mother of John. Or we could talk about Mary, who even this Thursday was called by a lot of the people in the uh, soup lunch as the Blessed Mother. Sometimes I recoil at that. And then I think, boy, she was. To bring Jesus into this world. Had a great discussion asking whether or not Jesus had a belly button. Because if you start unpacking that, what you're trying to say is how connected was he to Mary? Did he have any of her traits? Did he have any of her genes? It's an interesting question to ask. It's kind of tough. I differ from R.C. Sproul on that one from what I understand. I believe that he did have Mary's genes, that he was connected. Nevertheless, the message today is about other mothers who are unnamed. There's these mothers that were in the early church. These were great ladies. And and with no fault of their own, they're brought into the limelight. The spotlight comes on and it shines down on these ladies in the church in Acts chapter 6. And we want to look at them. God used these ladies to teach us some lessons. And I pray that you will be edified and encouraged even as I have been as we go through. The three points of the message is first to examine the sequence of communications. What came first? What was really being said? And when, you, when I unpack it like this, you're going to see 21 different things. Whereas you might have only seen two or three before. Secondly, we're going to examine the experience. What it was like to live through these communications. And thirdly, I want to be able to tell you biblically what is the process to overcome these complaints. What, is, what did it take in order to fix it, to get everybody to be pleased again? So the first thing, let's, if you take your Bibles, please open it up. We're going to be looking at each of these verses, all seven verses. We'll march right down them, and you're going to see them. I hope that you will understand it. Uh, all of these things took place roughly two years after Jesus ascended to heaven. Uh, Most of the commentators believe that this was A.D. 35 or A.D. 36. And if we take the calendar, we usually say Jesus died on A.D. 33. So we're talking about two or three years. The church is developing. It is starting to grow. We've moved from having two and three thousand. Now we have over five thousand. And it's adding regularly. Evangelism is still taking place. After this, we see multiplication from adding to multiplying. Wow, that actually sounds pretty good. Maybe that is the way God designed this, that we would move to exponentially as we go through complaints and trials. So let me walk through and examine the sequence. The first one that we find in verse 1 is that we find a communication of blessing. If you look there now in these days when the disciples, when the number of the disciples was increasing, right now you have this encouragement that God is blessing his church. Now, think with me for a moment. Let's back up three years. How big was the church? I know it's a trick question. Because if I'm talking about the invisible church, God has had a lot of people who are Christians throughout all of time who have been looking forward to the cross before it happened and after the cross are looking back to it. See, that's the invisible church. I'm talking about the organized church. The the church wasn't organized yet. You know, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus had said, I'm going to build my church. 
In other words, he says, I'm going to equip it. I'm going to organize it. I'm going to put it into place. But I have to wait. It's waiting for one thing first. Redemption has to be accomplished. And we see that in the words right before communion. We, it's absolutely clear. Once that was done, then, then it's unleashing with power. And he's taking the church to, to different places. But the first thing is, is that God is in this. He wants the church to grow. That is where we start, the communication of blessing. It was happening. What a great time. People had been in in fellowship. They had just endured the scheming from Acts chapter 5. And now, now they're seeing still people added. The fear of the Lord is a pretty cool thing. Second thing we find in the next verse is a communication of suffering. This is the first time that the bubble has popped. People were actually hurting. There was neglect is the word. And it was not good. When you look around the church even today, whenever you see suffering, the people of God ought to take notice of it. The third communication is that there was not just physical suffering by these ladies, but there was an actual bias. It was a habitual bias. It was, it was what we would call the modern day racism. There was a division that was bubbling up among the Christians because of the language difference. Because of the cultural breakdown, let me show you the words, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Do you have any idea what a Hellenist is? Hey, a Hellenist is, is a term that's related to, uh, to the Greek empire. So basically what they're saying is these are Greek-speaking people. They're probably Jews that have been brought in or they were, they were already under uh, Alexander the Great's reign and ended up still pe- speaking the language. So we have the Greek speakers and we have the Aramaic or the Hebrew ones. Now, when you're in the heart of Jerusalem, which do you think outnumbered who? Do, 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 you know. The people that are in Jerusalem, I mean, this is the city of God. I mean, if you think about that, the Orthodox ones, the, uh, the Hebrews, outnumbered the Hellenists. And if you look at the people who are uh, in in leadership, the 12 apostles, how many of them were Hellenists? Okay, so if you already begin to see the the decks being stacked, oh no, we have all these Hebrews and we don't have many Hellenists, what do we have to do? We have to protest. You have this bias. The Greek word talks about a habitual cultural bias. It existed. Now, the weird thing is it doesn't tell us that people actually made choices that were bad. It just meant that they took care of themselves. And that's probably what we do pretty well, too. When you got up in the morning, who did you feed breakfast? Did you feed your neighbor? If you ate breakfast, you probably took care of it yourself. If you have a family, you probably made sure they had breakfast. We typically don't look outside of ourselves because we're so self-focused. And that's what's going on here. We were taking care of ourselves. We were not looking on the needs of others. And that's what we saw, this bias. The third thing communicated is compassion. We see people who cared about these hurting, suffering people. I don't know if you missed it or not. But the ones that complained, they complained because they saw the injustice was lovely. They cared. They had eyes to see that these ladies were hurting. They were eyes to see that there was neglect and it was, there was a bias in it, whether it was intentional or not. The fourth communication was injustice. When they saw the hurting of their, of their moms, 
They said, we got to do something about it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be better than this. They claimed injustice. And verse 1, it says, a com- uh, excuse me, here you can, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows. They were being neglected in the daily activities. Day after day after day after day, people were being favored over other people. And I imagine that after weeks and after months, this was frustrating them all the more. So the complaints and the murmurs got louder and louder and louder. The next communication finds in verses 2. And the 12 were, and let me read it for you. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. And then they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In this, we find first the communication of concern. The leadership said, uh-oh, it's a good thing they paid attention. They heard the grumbling. And then the first after, you know that they heard it because they, the 12 apostles, they summoned the other disciples. They got a whole leadership team together. And the, the second one was a communication of leadership. We are going to address this. We're not going to sweep it under the rug and say, oh, well, nothing matters. These people can just leave. They said, we're going to address it. Then we had a communication of activity. We're going to do something. Next, you have the communication of priority. This is what has to be done first. And then we have the communication of honesty. It's just simply not right to keep this going the way it is. And it's simply not right to expect us to have to fix it all by ourselves. When you look at that verse, he says, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word. What he's basically saying in that communication, he says, the preaching of the gospel is going out and we don't need to be caught up in in all the other things so that we miss the preaching of the gospel. Because you're going to find at the end of the story, did we start adding to the church or multiplying to the church? We end up multiplying to the church because the guys who were supposed to be preaching did more preaching. It was really kind of interesting, this dynamic. So when you look at verse 2, you see how all these communications, concern, leadership, activity, priority, and honesty. And then in verse 3, let me read it. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and appoint them to this duty. In that particular passage of verse 3, we find four other communications. The communication of logic. He's like, you can just see them scratching their head and they're saying, If the people aren't getting taken care of, then let's get more people to help take care of them. You can just hear the logic. It just makes clear sense. It's like, why didn't we think of that before? We have the communication of trust. We need to have godly men to do this. Pick out from among you certain kinds of men. We can trust these guys. We should be able to trust them to fix this. And then he says there's this communication of sanctification. These seven men that we're going to have to come in to fix the shortcomings of the, of the 12 apostles is that these, these seven men, they're going to be sanctified guys. And what are the words that's, that talk about these kind of fellows? They're handsome, right? They're tall. They're all business owners? Okay, I'm, you guys are getting, we're working you up. You're seeing clearly that these men are of good reputation. These guys, when you look at them, you know that they're good guys. You've lived life with them a little bit. And then they're also full of two things. They're full of it, literally. They're full of the Spirit of God, and, and because the Spirit of God is in them, they have wisdom. 
And it's kind of interesting when you look at the sanctification. He says, hey, we can trust these guys because they have wisdom. They'll figure out a path to be able to get through this. And then there's this communication of authority. And when you guys find these godly people, you bring them to us. And with the authority that God has given to us, we will set them apart and grant them delegated authority to implement it. If you look at this text, we will appoint them to this duty. You see, they had a respect for authority. And I, you, you can't miss that when we get to the next point. But all of these things are being communicated. Then there's a few more communications if you look at the next verse, uh, which is in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is one of the clearest applications for, in a church. You need spiritual leaders who are going to commit themselves to praying and spiritual leaders who are going to commit themselves to the communication of the word of God or to the gospel by word and by deed. The communication of determination and of calling. You could not take Peter and say, Peter, no more. You can't do that anymore. Get over here and fix this. Peter says, I've been called an apostle of Jesus Christ. You can read about how he explains it in his epistles. You could do that with John and you could do it with all the other apostles. There was a calling and they had, because of that calling, they had determination. We are going to stay on course We're not going to let this thing get us off track. Wow. And then there was the communication of satisfaction in verse 5. And the people were all pleased. I love that verse. Let me read it again. And, And what they said pleased the whole church. Not very often in Scripture where you get phrases like that. But when you focus on what is being communicated, you can see that this is what's so important. They said we need to take care of this business because of the injustice. There's great compassion. There's all these things. But we also need to not neglect the preaching of the word. It's really fascinating. And so the next verse comes out at the end of verse 5 is the implementation. It's not just all talk. It's not just say all platitudes. It's not just say, oh, that's a nice idea. They got to it. And they chose Stephen. Then they chose uh, Philip. They chose these other five guys. And in verse 6, we have the communication that they also had another action, ordination. They brought them before the apostles. The apostles prayed. They laid their hands on them. They ordained them to this particular task with the blessing of the whole church. Wow. And then we have in verse 7, a communication, not of addition, but of multiplication. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples now multiplied. Luke goes and he uses a different term that says it's not just incremental, but now it's it's exponential. Because they finally got the church right. We have many parts to one body. And when all the parts are doing their parts, then the church will multiply. That the word of God will go forth in power like it's supposed to go forth. Wow. Wow. And then the last one in verse, at the end of verse 7, it says that a great many of priests came, became obedient. There was a communication of transformation. Did this make any difference? I mean, we're already to the good stuff, right? No, I wanted to make sure you see that this is the first time that we find all of the religious guys who are going through all the religious motions in Jerusalem. They've been there for three years already. They've heard about this Jesus. They've heard about the testimony. But they've been priests. This has been their job. They have to offer animals. And now Jesus comes along and he says, no more offering of animals. 
What does that do to their job? Makes it easier. Less people in line. The priests, because they were ministering to people's personal needs, the priest said, hey, this Christianity stuff really is different. It's not all about sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. It's about love. And they dumped what they were doing that was religious worship, uh, deeds, uh, all that stuff of going through the motions, and they said, we will follow Christ. Now, I told you this was a three-point sermon. The second one's a lot faster. The second one has to do with the experience of all these communications going on. If you were living in that day, what would you have felt? Well, I want to be able to set the stage. There were four, there were three, four feelings in, chapter, in the previous chapter leading up to this. There was a feeling of awe. In chapter 4, verse 11, wow, wow. There was real fear. Ananias and Sapphira died, and they didn't forget that. And then in, in verse, chapter 4, verse 13, there was feelings of respect, utter respect. There was a great esteem for the leaders in the church. Man, you didn't mess with Peter. You didn't want to go down like Ananias and Sapphira did. The feelings of confidence towards the end when some of the, the religious, not the religious, but the secular politicians, they said, shut up. And so they put him in jail and said, Peter, we're not afraid of you. We're not having that fear of God stuff. So they put him in prison. Then they said, we need you to be quiet. And if you look at the end of chapter 5, <coughs> they weren't quiet anymore. The earth shook. And if you remember the boldness prayer. And, and so then you have this feeling of inevitability. When the apostles came out of that, when the, when the, when the local uh, government couldn't stop the gospel going forth, he couldn't scare the preachers into submission. <coughs> it was so cool. There was this feeling of inevitability. If it's of God, it's going to come to pass. Now, in chapter 6, we have this feeling of consuming frustration. We have the feeling of urgency. The two awful things. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. If you had lived through it, if you had been one of those moms, your life is not pretty. It's no fun to be on the other side of a minority. We ought to have eyes to see that. Even the apostles didn't take notice of it until the murmuring took place. But then there was a feeling of hope. There was a sense that something good can come out of it. It's not just going to be we have to live a life of misery. We don't have to live a life of complaining all the time. We can have hope. And so there's this expression that comes out, a reaffirmation, that, that the apostle Peter says, hey, we're here so that the good news goes out to people and it has a wonderful effect on their life. The church of Jesus Christ and then you have this feeling of inevitable triumph. And when you look at it, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And he goes on to say, the word of God continued to grow as these guys did it. I'm telling you, it's pretty exciting to see that. But how did the health come back to the church? And this is the third point, the examination of the process. There's two main ways that God did it. As I was reading through all the, the materials, I ran across one of my old professors, Roger Nicole. He, he listed about 30 ways they didn't do it. And then when I went to James Boyce, I liked it. He only came up with five ways that they didn't work. Now, listen to these five ways that they could have done it, and some of them might have done it in the PCA like this. First, if you have a conflict in the church like this where you have people that speak different languages and stuff that are complaining because it's not fair, we could have established two churches there. You could have had... You've got to have the first church over here and second church across the street. Have you ever seen that in a town? <laughs> That's one way of doing it. No unity in that. Secondly, you could have shunned the difficult people. 
That's what they might have done. Simply ignore them. Set them apart. You know, it's kind of like put them out in timeout. Just, just ignore them. All this complaining, you're ruining the church. Don't shun them. The third way, he says you could outvote them. And he quotes, in the PCA circles, we just use a democratic majority to shut up the minority. He says that a lot of people believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through 51%. That really doesn't sound spiritual when, it says, when we say it like that, does it? The fourth way that Boyce brought up is, he says, we can just simply separate. We can take 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where it says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Let's start a new church. Not next door, but let's just start our own place because we're going to stay pure. We're going to be the continuing church. But the problem will happen is that when you're in your new church and you got new people coming because you're reaching out to new sinners, guess what will happen next? There'll be another split. The fourth way, excuse me, the fifth way that Boyce says is that the, that the apostles did not use, they didn't form a subcommittee. A subcommittee will, will, without power, will wait long enough to hopeful, that hope that it will just fade away. No, the solution came in two things. One was through leadership, and the other was through the gospel. And as we come to the Lord's table, let me highlight those two things for you. The leadership addressed it immediately. The 12 at the top, they gathered the other ones who they were discipling, because there was a discipling relationship going on, and they digested the communications. They digested these communications. What's going on? Is the issue the issue, or is it something else? You see, it's not just about the people not being fed. It was about the bias that left them neglected. We have to deal with the real issue, the proposal. So they they dealt with that by addressing it immediately. Secondly, the leadership proposed a response. They said, We're doing everything we can. We need more help. We need more help. And they talked to the Lord about it. And they ended up saying, we need godly guys to come alongside. And we need to ordain them to this task so that they can get in there and make sure nobody's neglected. And make sure that this ugliness of a bias is gone. They wanted spiritual men. They wanted the people to give them their input. And they affirmed what needed to be done. The people said, that sounds good. The leadership then implemented this. They implemented their strategy. They didn't just come up with a great idea. They did something about it. The leadership solution said, this cultural divide is real, so we're going to get seven men. And did you look at the names of the seven men? Did you look at them? Now, if you pronounce them in the original Greek, they would sound very naturally Greek. Stephanos. Nikonos. If you go down all those different ones. What do you find missing from these seven guys? Any of the Hebrews. It's really fascinating that the issue that they bring up is saying, hey, we're neglecting these people. So they said, get the people who can do this, who are wise, who are full of the Holy Spirit. And they got together ones who knew how to minister to those people. And they were all Greeks. They were all Hellenists. And it still didn't divide the church. It unified the church. It's really cool. But the one thing that I can't escape as we come to the Lord's table is that it's not just leadership. This was not a militaristic type of thing we're saying. The general says, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. 
It's not like we're just doing the, uh, the uh, Exodus 18 where we get Jethro saying, let's divide up this, let's put 50 people over that, and, and then put somebody over 1,000 people over here. It's not just the mechanics of, of administration that we're dealing with. Because the issue is not just about the hurting people that are hungry, those moms that are being neglected. The issue is what's going on in people's hearts. There was a real division. You know, all the latest Marvel movies, they're all about the good guys fighting the bad guys, right? Stop shaking your head, yes. The latest movie out there is called Civil War. It's pretty cool. My kids told me not to tell you the end of the story. Civil War means that they're fighting themselves. Batman versus Superman. And this time we have Iron Man versus that other guy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Captain America. Oh, silly pastor, why do you talk about this? This is what our culture is seeing. And this is what the movie directors are putting together. And, and when you come away from this movie, you ask the question, what would it take for us to fight like that? Almost to the death. And you walk away and say, why? Is it really worth it? The disciples said that the only reason why they could have this peace is because God already took away that sharp sword that was going to kill them and divide them. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to be able to see quickly that in those verses of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul had gone up to the church in Ephesus. He had tried to preach to them. And there was a division up there. Just like if you went to Corinth and there was division there, you can read that they were divided because some like this pastor more than this pastor. Can you imagine that? I love Apollos. He's the best. I love Paul. You know, if they're preaching the gospel, you ought to love them. But the division was not beautiful. In, in Ephesians, the division wasn't over the leaders. It was over the division. It was, this, it was this ethic, this cultural problem. And if you look there in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves circumcised. As the church grew, it wasn't now between uh, Jewish Christians and, and Hebrew Christians. Now it was, we have those of you that were uncircumcised and those of you that are circumcised. We have a battle. There's always battles going on. But in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, who you who were once afar off, you've been brought near because of the blood of Jesus. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility is the word that he says. He's abolished this hostility in his flesh. He fulfilled all the commandments, all the regulations, and he did it in love. We come to the Lord's table. And if you don't get the gospel, then don't come and dine. The gospel says that these walls are torn down, that the hostility needs to go. We are two in Christ, right? We are one in Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. One. When we come to the table, we're the family of God. We need to know that the only way that these divisions of hostility ever come down, regardless of what side you, you start making it, whether it's those of you that are for Trump and against Trump, those of you that hate Fox News and those of you who love it, 
Those of you that can't stand politics and those of you who can't live without it. Those of you who want to have kids in here and those of you who don't want kids in here. If you, if you take the divisions and bring them to the Lord's table, they should be crucified. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and he peace, preached the same peace to you who were near. For through Christ, we have access to the same God by the same Spirit. Consequently, there is no more parties. There is no more foreigners, no more aliens. But we're all fellow citizens with God's people. In the, and we're members of the same household. We're built on the foundation of, yes, those apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Verse 21. In him, the whole building is connected. It is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. God himself is in this place. And we're just living stones. Dear Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table now, I pray that we might marvel at what was done in Acts 6. We thank you for the leadership that you provided through those unlearned men. You did train them well. They didn't see all their biases. They didn't see some of the neglect. Obviously, they were caught up too busy doing things, even discipling some guys. But Lord, I thank you that there were others who cared that these mothers wouldn't have to suffer perpetually. Lord, I thank you that through the murmuring that things were made better. We thank you that the mur- through the murmuring and through the, the growth of the church with leadership and with an application of the gospel, that the, God, that the word didn't just add people, but that you multiplied the growth. As we come to the Lord's table today, O oh Lord, I pray that you will remind us of the beauty of that one gospel. There's only one cross. Jesus only died once. The just for the unjust. That's for everybody in this room that he might bring those kinds of people to himself. Lord, thank you for drawing us. And as we come to dine at your table, I pray that you would help us to leave aside the other things that help build the wall of hostility. And I pray that you would give us the joy of being one family, your family, in Jesus' name. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Come on up, if you will. He took bread. And according to the church account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'd like to go ahead and read it for you. You can hear that there was some discord in Corinth. If, if Paul was going to write to them, it was because they weren't getting it right. He was concerned in chapter 11 about short hair and long hair, about how you're going to conduct things. And then he gets to the Lord's Supper. He says, verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because you do not come together, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When, when you come to church, it's supposed to be for the better. He says, if you guys in Corinthians... In the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there is always factions among you. But in verse 20, when you come together, it is the Lord's Supper that we eat. For in eating, each one of us goes ahead with his own meal. That's the wrong thing. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do not, don't you have houses to do all that in? Do, don't despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. So what I say to you, brothers... Shall I commend you? I'm not. 
Let me show you a more excellent way. For I received of the Lord that which I also was delivered to me. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. That was up at Mount Zion in the upper room. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, as he looked to the twelve. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You remember why he died and who he died for. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will...